So we are here today. I have no idea what episode this is. Okay, so okay, this is this is our first combination episode that's Ooh. being published on Thursday. So this is episode. It's a combo. <laughs> I know it's it's the only way to do it without the numbers getting all funky. Yeah. So we're eight point five and nine point five. This okay. is Peter and Casey. Okay, so this is Peter and Casey. We are here with Christi Christiana Kimmick. Oh, you got it right. And I am Karen Lobster Karen. <laughs> you know, I heard that story whenever I was, I think Peter was training me for something. Jeez. Right? Who's, he, when he's training you? You're like, you and I are so close. And so I, know, he, but like, I, mean, I get these awesome bro. stories. The Karen Lobster Karen. And I had this thought and I'm just remembering it. But I wanted to like, for your birthday, make you a Karen Lobster Karen nameplate. And put it on your desk. <laughs> I mean, I just want to understand what was going through my mind, right? Because, like, okay. Me too. I want to understand. Like, okay, I get – I got you at Karen, right? Like, okay, right. I wanted to change my name to Karen. Sure. Karen was my cool drug addict aunt. <laughs> okay, fine. Right? Fine. Right. Lobster. I mean, I liked lobster, so maybe it was that. Or maybe we had just gone to Maine. I don't know what the <laughs> impetus for lobster was. And then the Karen. Come back on the end of it. Coming back on the end of it. Like, and I just think it's amazing. Karen Lobster Karen. Knowing you now, and I'm <laughs> sure you were, you know, you had this as a child too. I probably had more brain cells then. I think you've grown your brain cells back. Mm. Girl, you graduated from UCLA and you're at Johns Hopkins now. I think you got your brain cells back. You are awesome. I think I had more brain cells at five. I think we all did. <laughs> I think I may have. I think life and responsibility. I think I may have just... snorted a few away. <laughs> I think knowing you, if I could venture a guess and, and knowing that age very well, because that was the age that I taught dance or the, the age range of which I taught dance for. That's probably not right. You taught five-year-olds dance. Yes. <laughs> and loved it and loved these kids like beyond anything. I feel like at that age you're – making your own decisions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's like, you know, this thing where people have a first, middle, and last name. That's what you're learning. You're learning people uh, have a mom. They have a dad. You have a first, middle, and last name. Other people. First, middle, last name. Okay, right. Other people are naming you. Well, I yeah. think you just wanted to make your own decisions on your first, middle, and last name. Yeah. And so I think that Karen Lobster I want to make Karen, my own decisions on everything. Right. That was kind of my deal. I fully support that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure it was a good idea, but that was definitely. So technically – if this is what you were going for, this is just my hypothesis on your five-year-old mind. Your name was actually Karen, Karen, with lobster as your middle name. So technically, you'd be Karen. Actually, squared. I think I'm bringing it full circle because I was doing another Sarah Jessica Parker situation where, instead of I was Karen Lobster Karen, and now I'm Ashley Loeb Blasting Game, where I was <laughs> demanding that I be called the entire thing. <laughs> you can't get away from the no, three I names. No, I can't. I can't. I'm just pulling it off. I'm just doing it. I love it. I, I know when people are like, great. what's your last name? I'm like, it's Ashley Loeb Blasting Game. And they're like, so your middle name is Loeb? I'm like, nope. That's my last name too. <laughs> but I'm not hyphenating. Yeah. Well, I tried to hyphenate. I, it just gets so complicated. Right. So it, it's now I'm just Karen Lobster Karening. Have you ever gone Ashley Williams Loeb Blasting Game? Because Williams I is I talked Ashley's about that, name. but. Not so much. I just. So, and Blasting Game is a long last name. Exactly. 
It's a, I went from a four-letter last name to an 11-letter last name. Yeah, that's a lot. I was pissed about it. I have a 10-letter first name. Yeah. And so that was a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, when they give you, like, the boxes to fill out and you're like, cool. Did I ever tell you my that— My name is Blessing. <laughs> did I ever tell you that I wanted my name to be Ashley when I was younger? No. Yeah, that was my chosen— If I could have chosen my name, it would have been Ashley. I changed the spelling of my name many times to A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H, and I demanded that everybody spell it that way. (laughs) You demanded. I can't see that at all. Oh, I really did. It was on all my school paperwork, which got really complicated. Luckily, there were no other Ashleys. So they were just like, Ashley's finding herself. (laughs) Ashley's making her own decisions. Okay, so speaking of Karen Lobster Karen... We did the episode. I did the episode with Peter, with my dad, which was so good. Which was really good. People are <laughs> reaching out like more than any other episode, asking questions, mm-hmm. and the response has been really amazing. So that's been cool, and it was fun to do it with him. It was fun to watch you guys talk. Your your cadence and just dynamic as so many different things that you guys are, father and daughter and co-workers, co-owners of the company, you know, with Ian. It was just so neat to see that and to watch you guys recall things, I mean, and deep hurtful things, but to see the journey that you two have been on together and your love for each other. Yeah. Oh, it's just like, it's just amazing. Yeah. He's a remarkable human. He really is. He's a really good person. And for all of all of our mistakes and whatever, you know, I, I, you know, I really lucked out. So I, I feel very grateful and I know lots of people have reached out and be like, oh my God, you know, I always had the cool dad. People were always like, oh, your dad's the coolest. And, (laughs) you know, and like, I know. Um, (laughs) Peter is the coolest. Shout out to Peter. Yeah, he is. He is. It was interesting because he talked about some things I actually, I've never heard him tell the, my overdose story like that. Um, Yeah. I didn't know the, I didn't know the, like, I knew some details, but like, I didn't know the detail details. I didn't know my jaw was locked. I didn't know, like, I didn't know some of that stuff. I mean, I knew he came in to find me. I knew he called 911. Mm. I knew my grandmother was there. And the reason that we laughed that my grandmother was there, my mom's mom, is that she lives in Rhode Island and didn't come to visit very often. So she was there relatively infrequently. Like we would go visit her for the most part. And so her being there was a big deal. Oh, my God. And then that happened. Yeah. So like that – it was like I think she may have come out in 20 years like four times. So one of those times – Just happens to be – I overdosed. Oh. So that's why we were like – Right. We were like, uh, Yeah. That she was yeah, there. he was like, my mother-in-law just happened to be there. That's why. Because it was like, seriously, Ashley? Yep. Seriously. So there's that. Well, at least uh, she got in a, you know, front row seat to what was actually going on. Oh, God. Yes, um, oh, I- that was gnarly. It was, you know. Hearing hearing yeah. your dad. I've heard your overdose story from you. And, and it's hard to hear still. But I wasn't awake, so I don't have like a really good story about it, right? Like I just hearing a father talk about their child. Yeah. It's like and it makes it so much more real because like you can hear these stories and and they're horrible. Yeah. But if you don't know people personally, it's not quite as personal for you because you're not picturing that this is happening. And you know both parties very well. Yes. And so just seeing it, I mean I just I felt like the way he was describing I I I was just kind of seeing like a picture in my mind. Yeah. Just how horrendous that must have been for him and 
And then conversely, I mean, you had said it in the episode, you're like, oh, you know, the reactions of siblings, you know, for a sibling yeah. who's, you know, in, in you know, struggling yeah. with an addiction, you know, your your siblings are, aren't are like, I mean, I'm sure they were upset, well, but the I, first so reaction is the sweatshirt. He was, right, the sweatshirt. So I actually texted to find out it was Tori's sweatshirt. She was like, I texted her after the episode. I'm like, whose sweatshirt was that? She was like, mine. It was my Menlo sweatshirt. <laughs> like, I'm like, okay. <laughs> so what you're saying is. Immediately. She, she remembers what sweatshirt it was. <laughs> like, that's, I'm just that's, telling you, that's, that's how the level big, of mad that, she was. That's the level of mad she was. She was like, but it's, it was, um, when he said, like, I said, you know, how did that change? What was, what was going on for you or what you thought about the situation? He said it was just more of the same. And I thought that was interesting because in my head, that was, Given the experience Mm -hmm. and given what I had heard and given for years, I mean, that was the first time in a long time I've heard him talk about it without crying. Like he usually cries when he – when it comes up. And given that when he said it was more the same, what I heard was like, oh, other things were like that. Like, yes, that was the scariest time, but like things were that serious all the time. And my sister's reaction was that of – more of the same, both of them. Mm. Tori was like, you cut my, you know, my sweatshirt got cut off, you a-hole. Like, right. And I mean, she she was young enough that she was still willing to, you know, be concerned about me. And then my other sister was like, I'm not dealing with this. Right. That was the level. Like that right. was, it was more, and Peter said, it, or my dad's, <laughs> sorry, still do that. Like it was more of the same. And, mm-hmm. every, and their reaction was such a good indicator. Kids who were like, oh, this is just more of the same. This mm-hmm. is just Ashley doing what Ashley does, another life and death situation. Jeez. And that kind of struck me because, you know, those are like new little tidbits of things that you think about and hearing about that and, and being a parent now. And just the the recovery pieces allowed me to be able to hear that and not feel a combination of horrendous guilt and regret and also the desire to explain myself, mm. right? Like on the one hand, like, oh my gosh, I'm such a bad person. I've caused all this harm, blah, blah, blah. What's wrong with me? And then also like, yeah, but you don't know what I was going through. And, you know, if you knew what I felt like, you would understand, you know, just all the things that it could potentially bring up for me. Mm-hmm. Hearing that, I could just like doing the recovery piece. When I hear about the hurt and pain I've caused other people, through my using, what happens for me is I just hear it now and I just hear it and I feel sad and I'm sorry and I want to continue to be an upstanding member of society and a a giver instead of a taker and a kind, thoughtful, helpful member of my family. But it doesn't throw me into the need to explain myself and it doesn't throw me into the need to feel like I'm the worst person on the planet. I just see myself as like a very I, – I, I have an illness that was very devastating and that's just what it is. And that is a result of years and years of recovery because, man, like <laughs> when we would talk about this stuff, you know, a few years after I got sober, when I was past explaining myself, mm-hmm. I've just felt horrible guilt. Just like I am the worst person. How could I do this to my family? Right. I mean, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, you're you're coming out of one brain, if yeah. you will, right? You're, right, your totally. Your brain is recovering, but you, you're not, yes, this is your brain. Yes, this is the illness that's telling you to do certain things or this is the disease right. that tells you you don't have a disease. And now you're having to make amends for something that you were doing almost like I don't know if it in felt another like state in, of mind, yeah. Right. Like I don't know if it felt like an out of body experience for you, just thinking or talking about yourself at that place in time or 
Yeah, it, it feels like a different person. Right. It feels like a different person. I mean, I used to think that I was possessed or that I was schizophrenic. Mm. And I remember being realizing that I was an alcoholic drug addict and thinking, oh, thank God. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, thank you, baby Jesus. <laughs> I am okay. You know, like that was a great outcome yeah. for me because I really felt – especially with the combination, and we're going to talk about this uh, as it relates to PTSD, because I had PTSD that showed itself as dissociative disorder. Mm. So my dissociation uh, com- combined with my like rage outburst combined with the addiction and alcoholism was really scary. Mm-hmm. And I did not know what was wrong with me. And I was pretty sure it was something that I couldn't tell people because if they, if I told people, I was afraid they were going to lock me up. Right. And I did end up in the psych ward, you know, a couple of times and for, you know, evaluations or overdoses or whatever. And, you know, that was always the result. It was interestingly enough, every time I went in for those evaluations, it was always the result of drug related things. Mm -hmm. So I was never, I I never was. Never you on your own. Yeah. I was never like, oh, I have a problem. Like it never concerned me. I always ended up there because of an overdose or some sort of really bad detox situation or whatever. And that was where you go. That's just where they put people. Right. They don't know what to do with people who are having a bad meth detox. That's where you go. So that's what you do. And so I was never like, oh, I'm in a psych ward. I'm psychotic. Like those two things never linked for me. But what I did know was that I was not in my right mind. Mm. And I didn't know why, and I didn't know how to stop it, and I knew that the drugs and alcohol helped. And so, yes, I wreaked all this havoc while in that state of mind. Mm-hmm. And so I'm making amends for being in that state of – There's, a, it's like a weird – it's a weird place because you take responsibility for your disease, right, for this alter ego, if you will. Mm-hmm. But you also make amends for the things that happened and that you did. During that time. As this alter ego. As this alter ego, right? Because it's... and must feel so strange. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I don't know if it feels strange. It doesn't doesn't feel unwarranted. Mm -hmm. It just feels like you want to explain yourself. And Mm -hmm. the reality is that the other person doesn't need your explanation. They need you to make amends to them. And Mm -hmm. they need you to heal them, help them heal. They need you to do the work. They need you to change. And so they don't really want your explanation of like how you felt about it when you did this thing or that thing. And that's not really relevant to them. You cause them incredible pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you are. And eventually you move, I think in recovery, you move through these different phases. And I remember going home for one of the things that happened, uh, my sister Marina, who is two years younger than I am, the one that didn't speak to me for a long time. And then we mm-hmm. rebuilt our relationship and we, you know, we're very, very close now. And we rebuilt our relationship. I was several years sober. I came home for Thanksgiving. She's sitting next to me. And one of the things that happened in our my using was that I was a very angry kid. Very, very angry. That was a huge part of my amends was rage. I would just lose and then I would dissociate. Mm-hmm. And and so I'd have these massive outbursts, whether I was loaded or not. And Marina was often the target of that. And um, as siblings do, they fight and mm-hmm. they, you know, they beat each other up or whatever. But this was kind of a next level of that. Mm-hmm. And I was at 
Thanksgiving, I'm several years sober. I've made all of my amends. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my amends that I made to my family was I would never lay another hand on anybody in my family ever again. Mm. And which, you know, feels like like something you learn in kindergarten, but, you know, like, don't touch other people when it's not warranted or not, you know, with their permission or whatever. And I was like, hi, I'm 19. I'm going to make amends to you and tell you, you know, like things, things, I, there's a, there's a book out there that's like everything I learned in kindergarten, I relearned in AA or something. I leaned, relearned in 12 step. And I was like, that's so real. Don't take things that aren't yours. You know, don't say things you don't mean. Keep your hands to yourself. Keep your hands. Oh, no, 100%. I was like, oh, my God. I I had to go to preschool again. Make Um, sure to pee in the bathroom. Oh, 100%. Yeah, pee in toilets. Um, Yeah, yeah. Don't drink poison. I I mean, I could go on. It's pretty much. It's so true. It it really is. It really is. It's life skills. It's life skills, right. So I made these amends. So several years in, Thanksgiving, sitting next to Marina. I reach over to grab something over her. My mom's going to roll over right now because I reached over her at the dinner table. So now I have to make amends for being rude. But I reached over Marina and she totally flinched away from me. And like, you know, like, and I looked at her and I go, did you think I was going to hit you? Like she flinched like I was going to hit her. Right. And she goes, oh, sorry. It was just a, it was just a instant reaction. Whoa. And I just burst into tears oh, and was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, you know, because those – what happens is you, I, Ashley, get so far away from that person, from those – you know, I was years away from it. But for her, that was years of that experience. Right. And that was kind of the PTSD response, which was that her – she was having a physical reaction to me reaching into her space. Mm. And my heart just broke, right? And, of course, she – I started crying and she was like, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I knew you weren't going to hurt me and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, like, don't be sorry. It's okay. I'm just so – like, I'm just so sad. I'm just so sorry that this – that that is still part of your reality. And, like, even if we've moved past that, even if I – I'm a new person. Like all those things, you know, you just hear about the pain you cause people you love and you wish you hadn't. And right. that's it. There's no like, there's no, okay, but I was hurting and I was a kid and all that stuff doesn't really, I mean, that's fine and true, but on some level, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry that I hurt my family and that's it. But I don't have to wallow in that anymore. So there's like, there's, there's that recovery pieces, that balance of like, I don't hate myself. I just really wish I hadn't done that. Right. So that's a a good place to be. And I think my, you know, it's been a long time since I was that person. Yeah. It really has at this point. I mean, you're 13 years sober. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been a long time since I was a human. So it's, that's good. Um, The other thing, so that he brought up or, oh no, this was something that, so I've had uh, several text messages and emails about this um, from people I know and from people I don't know, which was my dad talks about what to do or what to look for Mm. if you have young kids. Like, how do you know if your kid is an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever you want to call it, has the ism? And I think that, and and I I also said that, you know, oh, it's really hard to win because what you're saying is going to be interpreted through whatever filter that person has as a child. Mm -hmm. And you can't really break through that. So I want to amend a little bit of what I said. You can – so I'll use an example. My dad said that I would study 
all night and then get these grades. And I basically had this massive anxiety around studying and around getting good grades. And that was true. And that he would gather up my test scores and show me that there was no reason for me to be this upset or, or whatever it was because I was getting all A's anyway and that I would always have the same reaction and I would always have the same outcome. And he was right. That's right. That is true. But what he missed and what we didn't talk about in that whole thing and where the change can be made in terms of what parents can do, what I needed to hear was that they were proud of me for working really hard and that they thought I was really smart and that it impressed them every time I got an A and that they didn't expect that of me. They just thought it was really wonderful that I could do that. And when my reaction to being shown that I was getting these grades was, this is where the bar is set. Mm. We expect nothing less of you, mm. which is what they said. We expect nothing less of you, Ashley. You that, that see, but they were that meaning in an apart like exactly oh, yeah. like this is this is just who you are, right? But what if I had a bad day, right? What if I what if I didn't do that? Mm. Then they expect that because that's they thought that's who they believed I was. So mm. what if I didn't? What if I didn't live up to that one time? There was no contingency about it. There was no, Ashley, what do you need from us? Why are you so wound up in this? Mm. And what would have come out was that I needed validation desperately. Mm. And I needed to know that I was making them proud or happy. And my sister was struggling in school and was getting all sorts of validation for getting grades that weren't, you know, straight A's. And so I was confused about that and took that to be like, we expect nothing but perfection from you because that's what you've given us and now we expect that. So there were a lot of unmet messages and and what my dad was trying to say was that you you always, you know, you do well, we love you, we're, we're proud of you. But what was missed was this, what was this? massive insecurity and upset about. Why was mm-hmm. I so afraid? Right. I was afraid to let people down because I had set the bar high. And what happened was I realized I had set the bar high and that that was stressful and that I needed to drop the bar. Mm. And so I went on, you know, from there, that was that was one of the messages that I took. And I think to look at and to ask questions instead of trying to say like, your feelings are not valid or your feelings are not reasonable, Mm -hmm. which is what holding up your test scores and saying like, hey, it doesn't make any sense that you're this upset. We know you're going to get an A, Mm -hmm. right? That's what what happened. Right. Well, the questions could have been, what's going on that you're so worked up about this? Do you think that grades give you value as a human? And Mm. I would have said, yes. Yes. I would have said, yes, an A means I'm okay. Mm-hmm. An A means I'm of value. Mm-hmm. An A means I'm smart. An A means I can have a good career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I would have told you in seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. So the real issue had nothing to do with what we talked about and what the parents thought was the issue. The real issue had to do with what was going on with me. And so it's, I really, uh, um, really think that if you have a child who's having ab- what you believe to be abnormal reactions to things, to explore them. Mm. What's going on? What is going on that is causing you to have this reaction? And try to listen 
to what it is that they tell you and really listen for the deep meaning behind it. So if they say, well, I'm afraid of not getting an A, I'm just using this example. What is that fear about? Just keep digging because that's where you'll find what the real problem is, Mm -hmm. where the real insecurity is. The stuff on top is just a a manifestation of whatever's going on deep inside. And, you know, he also talked about being at loose ends if I didn't know what was going to happen next. Well, I'm still like that. My husband, we would go on these bike rides and, you know, I would say like, you can, you know, you tell us, I'm going to follow you. And he would make decisions about where we were going to go as, and this is like leisurely bike riding. He'd make decisions where we were going to go as we were, you know, this was in Newport Beach in the, in the Bay. And as we were going through these streets and I said, I need you to tell me the next three moves you're going to make. You can make it up. You can change your mind, but I have to have like the idea that you're just going to change directions on a whim makes this not fun for me. Like it really gives me massive anxiety. Just on a leisurely bike ride. On a leisurely bike ride. Wow. And he was like, what? (laughs) I'm like, look, I don't, I'm not going to try to explain this to you. I'm just going to tell you the facts. And the facts are that if you have some sort of plan, even if it changes, if you have some sort of plan that you know what's going to happen, like Mm -hmm. what decisions you're going to make about the direction we go, Mm -hmm. I can calm down. If you don't, I can't. I cannot enjoy this experience. Wow. And And that's what that is for me. So finding a way to appease or ease that discomfort, whatever that is. I think when I've looked deeper into that, it's a lot about like, if I don't know what's going to happen, then I assume what's going to happen is bad. There's no world in which not knowing what's going to happen could end up well. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that's where my head goes. So, So then you go to, okay, so not knowing equals danger, bad, uncomfortable, scary, mm-hmm. right? So that's the piece. Instead of going, well, Ashley has to know what the next plans are f- after Disney World. Why is it that Ashley is so scared of not knowing? Mm-hmm. What's the experience there? What's that about? How can we have some structure for her? Like, hey, dinner time is always going to be between these two times. So we can tell her what time it is. And she knows that roughly dinner is going to be around these two times. How can we institute something that makes this person, this child feel safe? Mm -hmm. Those are the things that I would recommend and that I have when people have reached out since this episode around what can we do if we see these behaviors? Teach them to cope. Teach them, you know, the stuff that they learned in preschool. Continue to teach them that. Give them safe spaces around the issues that they are afraid of. Even if you find that ridiculous and you're not afraid, it's not about you. It's about what they're experiencing and and validate that. I see that you're having this experience and that it's really scary, for you, scary and upsetting yeah. for you not to know what time dinner is going to be. Yeah. Don't say that's ridiculous. That doesn't help anybody. Right. You thinking it's ridiculous does not change the fact that I feel that way. Right. Say, how can we make this what can I do? What can mommy do to make this a little bit easier? How can we figure out and then work with them and then say, do you know that sometimes good things happen when we don't know what's going to happen? Has that ever happened? Have conversations, ask them what they need, get curious about what it is that's causing them to have these crazy to you behaviors and then work on coping skills. Look at, you know, what do we do in, in, uh, recovery and in treatment? We'll, 
we we exercise, we you know many people meditate, we have community, mm-hmm. we have passions. Like what are the things that we do when we get sober that we can implement as a young kid? What are the coping skills? We have people to talk to, we learn how to write our feelings, like right. all the things, all the things we create structure. All these things, those are things you can implement with your kid who's exhibiting the signs that are causing you distress. And, you know, ask for help. Ask someone, ask a professional for help. I don't know how to deal with the things that I'm seeing in my kid. What can I do to be a better parent? There's no shame in asking for help with something you don't know how to do that you've never done before. Right. And there's, um, I've also seen, I mean, they're not professional resources, but you know, there's so many mom groups, like especially like on Facebook in our area, definitely. I don't know. Um, yeah, I would. Is. I mean, so you're going to get a lot of different opinions, which I think is fine. And mm-hmm. I do think that mom groups are good. I've absolutely utilized them. One that I really love is raising your spirited child. There is, as Peter mentioned, that I was a spirited child and <laughs> I believe that I have birthed <laughs> spirited children. Um There's a book about raising spirited children, and they have a corresponding Facebook group for people who are in that community. And there is this group of kids that's kind of between, like, you have kids with diagnoses and real disabilities, and then you have kids who are, you know, kind of have on this spectrum. And these spirited kids, they don't necessarily, there's not necessarily anything, there's no necessarily, they don't have any a disability per se, mm-hmm. but they aren't in the calm realm of normal kids. Right. They don't act in that normal space. Okay. And people like to throw them in the disabled category because they can't really figure out what's wrong with them. Sure. And really just the normal structure, societal structure of sit for three hours in class, do these, you know, whatever doesn't work for them. Right. And there's nothing wrong with them. They just, that doesn't work for them. They are more spirited children and they kind of need a different way to function. So I highly recommend that. Um, There's a lot, that book, Raising Your Spirited Child, has so many self-soothing techniques that I have read and reread and reread and reread. And that are really great, that are different than the ones that I learned as an adult. Future entrepreneurs of America, the creative thinkers that break mindsets from a young age. Mm -hmm. I love it. (laughs) Yep. It's so true. People always, in the spirited spirited, uh, children group, they're like, I just really appreciate that my daughter, (laughs) you know, has these amazing leadership skills. She's a free thinker. She's, you know, outside of the box. She, all these things. But I really don't want to deal with that right now. (laughs) If she could learn to conform just for today, I'd be so grateful. Like, yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. So the other thing I wanted to touch on was Peter's advice to parents. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I had a mini heart attack. This, and this to clarify, this is at the very end of the episode. Whenever you said, do you have any advice for parents Mm -hmm. who are struggling with a child that does have a substance use disorder or they think that they believe that their child may have one? Yes. Obviously, his opinion about this is incredibly valid, and I don't want to take anything away from that. I have specialized training as an interventionist Mm -hmm. and have done work with a lot of different families around this, and I'm also obviously in recovery. 
And one thing, and he and I talked about this after the episode, so he completely, I know that he's on board with what I'm about to say. So he says something to the effect of like, if it doesn't make sense for you to let your daughter, and he specifically says daughter for a reason, live under a bridge, then don't do it. Mm -hmm. And he says, that doesn't mean take her home and give her access to your bank account, but you know, you have to do what's right for you. I completely agree with that. And I think there's a a, a big space for that. What I will say is that I have also seen a lot of parents actively contribute to the death of their children as a result of being unwilling to pull financial support until that child makes a decision that they want help with their problem. And what I mean by that is whether they're paying their rent or, you know, whatever it is, like all the things that they pay for. See, when you pay for someone's rent who's using, that means that whatever money they have doesn't have to go to rent. It's very difficult to use without money. And people will do a lot of things to get it, but the less money you have, the harder life gets really fast. Mm -hmm. I have seen more people with tons of money crash and burn and die because they could afford it. It's much harder to get sober when you can afford it. It really is. It really is because you can avoid consequences that you just can't avoid when you don't have money. So that is to say that I do coach a lot of families to say like, look, by you sustaining their lifestyle so that they can take all of their free time, all of whatever money they have or get and go buy drugs – You are contributing, whether that's them living in your home or you paying for an apartment or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that, that if you were not paying for those things, they would have to figure those things out, which would impede on their ability to use. The circumstance that you want is you say something to the effect of, look, I 100% support you in your recovery. I support you in your recovery. I will do anything to support your recovery. I will pay for your treatment. I will pay, you know, I will do whatever it takes to support your recovery, but I cannot support your addiction. And so again, that looks different for different people. I'm not saying there's a one size fits all, but I just want to address the fact that there are circumstances where you give where the best solution I have come up, you know, with families many of the the time where look the money is there for you our, along with our support mm-hmm. if you're willing to take the help. But I can't give you money in the form of X, Y, Z if you're not willing to take the help. So the moment you decide to pick up the phone and say, I want the help, I'm going to go into treatment or I'm going to whatever it is, then all of the rest will be there for you. So I think I just want to say that because I think that's really important. And I know that every interventionist on the planet would agree with me with, or at least most of them, would agree that we have seen so many parents have their kids die in their home, overdose in their home, or, you know, whatever. And that was a part of it. It just was. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say that you have to be honest with yourself, and there are some things you're not willing to do, Mm -hmm. right, as a parent. like, And that was kind of, uh, this is kind of speaking to what my dad was saying, which was, you have to live with your decision. Mm -hmm. If it's not right for you, if that's not a decision you can live with or that you can't follow through with, then you can't do it. Right. And I get that. I get that. As a parent, 
I get the fact that like there may be, and especially as a parent who also is a professional, also in recovery, I mean, I have all three of those things. I can also clearly imagine a situation where one of my children, I know what the right thing to do is from the professional level, from the addict level, but from the parent level, I can't bring myself to do it. I could see that. I could really, truly see that. Mm -hmm. I have to be honest with myself. That's the key. You have to be honest with yourself about where you are in that Mm. space. Are you doing it because you can't do it? You as the parent, I can't bring myself to do that. I can't live with that. Okay, fine. Or are you telling yourself that's the right thing to do and that this is the right thing to do. Those, I think those two things are different personally. Sometimes they match up, but I, I tend to think they're different. So it's okay if you can't do whatever the professional says that you should do. I would say just be honest about it. Just say like, I can't bring myself to do that. Well, what else can I do? I, I, you know, just be honest about what you think you can, or I don't know how I'm going to do that. I need massive support daily in in following through with that or whatever it is. Like the honesty aspect of it is really important. And if you can't do something because you can't live with that, that's okay too. But it doesn't mean that that's not the right thing to do in order to get the outcome you want. Right. That's really good advice. I'm glad that you clarified that because I can only imagine what it's like being in a situation like that and how I can't even imagine. Just like you said, it's like you, you're the one that has like, you have, you're a parent, you're a professional and you're in recovery and yeah, you'd think that would make it easier. It, I I don't think it's ever easy whenever yeah. you're having to make no. a dynamic decision for a child, and then especially if it is a life or death decision. I, I had an intervention um, with a family that I, I'm still in touch with. I adore, and their son was already homeless, and we got him in, and you know the whole family, and and I'm trained in Arise interventions, which is the invitational model, so it's a little bit different than the jump out and surprise you. We're doing an intervention, which is called the Johnson model. It's a little bit different. You know, there's a place for both, but it's not the one I was trained in. And it was really scary because all the things had been taken away from him. And I was like, how am I going to get this kid to agree to go to treatment? He's, you know, an adult. He's already homeless. And, you know, and we actually were like, well, we can't make you blah, 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 but we're going to, we know who your drug dealer is and we're going to call him and let him know that we're going to notify the local police that you are selling drugs and we're, you know, and, and we sort of went, because the, yeah, um, because the idea was like, we have to cut off the connection and we have to, we did what we could, right? We were like, okay, what can we do? Here Mm -hmm. are the things we can do. And so there are situations where it's like, and maybe, you know, maybe that drug dealer would have been like, this is ridiculous. No, you won't. Or I don't know who you are. Whatever. Whatever the situation mm-hmm. may be. But again, we had all of the family on board. So the family wasn't – everybody was in agreement that they were not going to to step out of, you know, our group agreement, which was that we don't help – we don't give money unless this person is willing to take the help. Mm-hmm. And at any moment, if he says, I don't want to take the help today, fine. But any moment – he decides, then bam, we're ready to help. And then also like, what can we do to try to stop on the outside? Because we didn't have much leverage. So, and it wasn't a threat. It was like, look, these are the things that we have to talk about doing. Like, you know, and we, 
you know, it, it, it's tricky. It's tricky. Um, he's he's sober and went to treatment and, you know, is uh, recently got married and it's oh, just like a really, so yeah, hear. it's a really, it's a really cool thing. But those are the kinds of circumstances where, you know, it's not a one size fits all, but you're getting creative and everybody has to be on the same page. And, you know, sometimes they already have lost everything and you're like, oh my God, what do we, what do you, what use, do you use from here? What do you do? What do you offer? What do you, you know? Yeah. It was, it was brutal. It was scary. I was, I was, I was honestly really shocked it worked. Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, thank you. I'm <sighs> so glad that it worked. Yeah. And especially it's so great to hear a story of somebody, you know, being able to kind of change their life around, especially from, you know, such a low bottom as yeah. he obviously had. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. It was pretty crazy. Well, that's really good advice. And I, I we uh, today's our first um, today's our first combination episode, as we mentioned earlier. And so we're talking about two different episodes yeah. as well. And so we talked a little bit about Peter's episode, and we wanted to mention that you know that we're also going to talk about Casey's episode, which is yeah. episode nine that just came out. And June is PTSD Awareness Month, and so. The episodes that you're going to be hearing, I mean, post-traumatic, post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, geez. (laughs) We're all tired today again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So post-traumatic stress disorder. And we just wanted to talk a little bit more about that because the episodes that are coming out this month in June, we've specifically hand-selected because they do talk a little bit more about the PTSD aspect many of our episodes are going to have aspects of PTSD oh, in sure. them. Pretty Usually, hard not to. If you're, exactly. If you're in recovery and you've lived through, I mean, these gnarly situations that you're hearing people live through, you're, you're going to deal with PTSD at some point. But we wanted to really kind of raise more awareness and talk about it a little bit more, especially in June, because I used to think that PTSD was for military you associate it with that yeah. just in general. And so PTSD, you know, oh, yeah, this is, you know, combat veterans because they've seen horrible things like legs blown off or, you know, just lived in battle, you know, lived in constant fear or terror or seeing horrible things happen around them. So but we wanted to kind of bring it to light that PTSD is not specifically just a term for military. Yes, that's generally how you're hearing about it. But what PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is, it's a mental health problem that some people develop after experiencing or witnessing a life-threatening event like combat, a natural disaster, a car accident, or sexual assault. So those are some... So I want to talk about that for a second because I think that's a terrible definition. That is the definition on the VA's website. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> Which I say think, that. I, I don't think that's – I think that's a terrible definition. And the reason I think it's a terrible definition is because post-traumatic stress disorder can come from seeing your mom be yelled at by your father and you being sure that he's about to hit her or his rage escalating to the point where, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. There are a lot – trauma is an experience that someone has – the actual thing causing the trauma is not ac- not quite as relevant because the chemicals that are released, the way that your brain responds is doesn't care about what the reality of the situation is, okay? So let's say I were to put you in a room and I were to tell you that there is a bomb in the room and it is going to blow you up and you have to save 
10 people in the room or else, you know, or else you all die and you're going to go to jail. I don't know, whatever. Some horrible war-related experience. Mm -hmm. But it's a, you, you don't know that it's a assimilation. Your brain doesn't care that it's whether that's a real situation or not. Mm -hmm. As long as your brain is experiencing that level of fear then or that level of stress, that's it causes that. So this is something that has come about, you know, we used to think and we used to talk about post-traumatic stress as it related to or shell shock as it related to combat. But Really what we understand is it's your brain's response to an incredibly heightened situation with fear and some sense of complete loss of control. Mm. So I have seen people who had the same level of post-traumatic stress from really erratic behavior in their family as someone who was raped, violently raped. Mm. I mean, it's their bodies don't know the difference, right? Because if in both scenarios, the person thought that they were going to die. Mm -hmm. Now, one scenario, probably much more likely to die than the other, but they didn't know that. Right. That's still the the, the right. trauma right. response. Right. It's a trauma response. Right. Exactly. So like if you have a simulation and you have a real scenario, but and both people don't know what the outcome is. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have those you're high have level. The same level. Yeah, it's until mm-hmm. after the after the fact when you find out how significant the problem really was. As you like, then then you you're putting you know hindsight. You're looking in hindsight and saying, oh well, I was definitely in a lot of danger, or oh, I wasn't in that much danger. Well, your brain doesn't care because at the moment that's the response. And then there's a I read a saying this: post traumatic stress symptoms do not develop after a stressful event is over, but rather our persistence of incomplete self-protection responses that occurred at the time of the event. So the feeling that they could not protect themselves, like incomplete responses, oh, like what do I do, that that intensity, mm-hmm. and then also the body's response to anything that triggers the sensory that was brought up at the time, which... Casey talks about mm-hmm. when she sees the movie Dumbo. Yes. Right? Like she sees the movie Dumbo and all the people are running out of the building. There's a fire of mm-hmm. the circus. And that triggered for her the repeat the same sensation that she felt with mass hysteria. Right. Everyone running away from mm-hmm. from this horrific event that was unfolding in front of her and bringing her back to that point in her memory and in her mind where she was not able to protect herself. And her body remembers. There's a right. really great book. There's a really great book called The Body Keeps the Score. Yes. And that it's really about that, that your body's experience and your body stores that data, that mm-hmm. memory. And so you see something visually and it reminds your body of what that felt like. And right. that brings up the trauma and then you get the symptoms. Right. And it, it unless that's dealt with, right, unless right. that's worked through, through the things that you'd mentioned, you'd mentioned EMDR in therapy and there's specific trauma work that you can do. I'm not saying 
you can do it so that like everything just completely goes away because I mean to be honest like the trauma that I experienced whenever I was five I still remember like yeah. it was yesterday I mean something will bring it up but like you were saying like you can get some sort of relief eventually from it. Oh yeah I mean you know I don't want to speak for everybody and all experiences because I don't know if every I don't know I would have imagined that there are some traumas that are you know, you could the, the certain levels of recovery are like as good as it gets, kind of deal. Right. Um, like learning to live with it. Yeah, I, I would assume so. But I know that with the kind of normal range of of what we see in the mental health and addiction world, would be things like you know assaults, family abuse, you know stuff like that. I think that, you know, I, 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 the things I'm thinking, like, I don't know if you get over being a POW or how that works or, yeah. you know, I can't speak to that. Or if you were, you know, I just read an article, someone's kidnapped and kept hostage for 25 years and uh, by the stepdad and God. had nine of his children. Like, I can't speak to that. Oh. You know what I mean, though? Like, yes. I can't, I'm not going to speak. Yeah. To, there are really high level situations that I don't want to put a blanket on because I really, I don't feel qualified for that. Right. What I can say is that like kind of in the normal realm of what we see of trauma, there's a lot of work that can be done to be able to leave a to be able to lead a happy functioning life where you are not constantly being triggered. The thing with Casey that I noticed was it felt much more for in my experience as, you know, having counseling, addiction counseling training and it felt much more like a therapy session than it did an interview. Because I think she has a lot of work left to do on her PTSD or to start doing. Mm -hmm. She hadn't really gotten the community support aspect and um, gotten down to why these symptoms keep coming up in those situations, how to work through them and get to a place of not feeling discomfort at that level, being able to date, all these different things. Yeah. I felt that she still was very raw from those things. Now, yeah. granted, it was only a couple of years ago, so there's no question that, you know, people heal and do work at different right. stages and levels and paces. But I just, I, I just felt like there was a sense for me, at least as the person conducting the interview, that it was much more of a therapeutic experience in the sense that we were kind of digging and pulling out what she was struggling with right. as opposed to what she had already overcome. Right. She's definitely, in a sense, still working through many different things. And I think that there comes a point, and, and again, this is very general, there comes a point in, in someone's recovery where they stop feeling like a victim of what happened to them, meaning not like a victim, like I don't mean that in a bad way, but meaning these horrific PTSD-like experiences are just washing over them like a wave and it just takes over and takes over and takes over. And you're, she'd mentioned like she didn't feel like she and her sister both were like, I we can't even talk to anybody right now because we feel like we're being depressing because we're really at this point right. where we're struggling and raw and numb and 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 there well, are other people there's that no taking there. your power back. They haven't taken their power back. Exactly. Yet. And so that's what I meant by the victim. Not, I, I really don't mean that in like a degrading way at all. But I say that because I've gone through very similar things to that where it's like people are just like, oh, just, you know, you're fine. It's it's fine. Like you have to now decide to be fine. And I'm like, frick, like 
if I could decide to be fine, don't you think I would have already done that five people, years ago? People think that. I mean, Christiana, oh. I heard her say, I'm just working through it. And then I asked, what are you doing? Like what? And again, I'm not blaming her. She, the, the system it has not been set up to support a robust recovery experience right. from this incident. I mean, multi-trauma. You know, and then, and, yeah. yeah. And I, and I do get, then it's like, well, whose responsibility is, I mean, I do get that there are, there are questions around that. I am not saying that the, I, I don't want to sound like I'm saying that the system should be perfectly set up either. Like I, I can imagine that it's hard to figure out who pays for something like this. Right. But when I hear people say, I'm dealing with it, and then I ask them what they're doing mm-hmm. and they're like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just telling myself or I'm just going through the motions. Yeah. That is not dealing with it. That's not, you can't, and what I always say is like, you can't fix your broken brain with your, your broken, broken brain. brain. Like you can't think your way out of these things. Yeah. Your brain is the thing that's having this reaction. So just if... If PTSD, trauma, addiction, mental illness could be thought out of itself, you could think your way out of it, wouldn't everyone do that? Yeah. Because it's I really think people unpleasant. would choose to do it. Yeah. Because right. it's if you could just choose to undo or you could, you know, you would, you would, you would do those things. You would have if you could choose, think your way out of OCD or I'm working on it or I'm telling myself. Uh, when I ever whenever I hear people say that stuff, I, you know, that just sends up r- big red flags. This is you d- you were not born with a manual on how to work through PTSD is like it's like what my dad said you know it's like having a burn victim like we d- we're not set we're up not to, set deal up with to deal this. with this it's not that yeah. it's not that you don't care it's not that you're not going to do your best it's not that you're not going to do research or try to figure it out or whatever it is it's like that's not your training mm-hmm. you and it sh- and why would it be Oh, there's no way. There's no reason you would you would say, okay, well, I'm going to get trained in all these things, right? So when people say like, oh, I'm just going to heal myself on my own by thinking through it, I call BS because, you know, most people I have seen that does not work well, that really receiving help, and you can receive help in lots of different ways. I am not saying that there's only one way, but one way I have seen work really well is reaching out to professionals who specialize in the thing you're struggling with. Right. Because they know how to walk you. Well, they know all the options too. Right. And they know how to like walk your brain through this, these methods of healing. And, right. And to get you that power back and to get that unstuck feeling. And again, we're, we're definitely generalizing right now, you know, to, to generalize trauma. There, There's definitely situations where people need deeper and more levels of help depending on what they've experienced. But, you know, whenever you have PTSD, you are stuck. And, and it reminds me of like a record that's like skipping and skipping and skipping. And you are, it's like you, okay, you want the record to move past that point. But there's something that's replaying. And it's actually like the word that I said with some of the PTSD that I've dealt with is torment. I literally feel like I'm stuck in this repeat of torment. Mm -hmm. Like my own mind is tormenting me with this and I cannot move past it because it's re-traumatizing me and re-traumatizing me and re-traumatizing me. And what the heck do I freaking do? And so it was actually working here was one of the things that made me I didn't have any negative connotation with therapy. I just didn't think of it as an option. Well, I, that's that what I was strange. No, it's not strange. It's really common, and that's actually what I was going to bring up. Was oh, we connected, girl? I we got ESPN. <laughs> um, what I 
see is that people don't even realize. Like when you were like, oh, I'm stuck. I don't think people think they're stuck. That's what I see. I felt stuck. See, I, but I don't think that's – I think that's a level of awareness that's unusual. Oh. Well, that I, most, I am very unusual. <laughs> yes. Thank you. You are. That's why you work here. <laughs> um, I, I don't think most people realize that they're stuck or realize that the event that they had was traumatizing. I think – I mean, I – and, like, I hear people say to me, like, oh, my dad was an alcoholic and he yelled at us a lot and, yeah, you know, broke something over my brother's head. But, you know, oh, was, you know, was, but are, like, things like that. And, like, okay, yeah, that may have been normal. And it may not have been the worst thing that happened. And there may be people who have experienced things that you might categorize as worse. And that still doesn't mean that your brain at three years old wasn't terrified and, like, oh, my gosh, dad's going to kill my brother. And that you yeah. don't react to rage with the feeling like, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, got to shut it down, got to shut it down. This is dangerous, dangerous. And that your brain doesn't send up big red flags to calm the situation down because anger is scary. Mm. And you don't know why you do it. That, I mean, that's a common thing. Like, so true. Right? So one thing I talked about was EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it is a form of psychotherapy in which a person being treated is asked to recall distressing images. The therapist directs the person in one type of bilateral sensory input, such as side-to-side movement or hand tapping. Okay, now this sounds like voodoo, and it sounded like <laughs> it sounded like voodoo to me when I first heard about it 15 years ago. And I tried it many times, and I I. I had talked about this, about like what the therapist thought my trauma was versus I thought what my trauma was. But I want to talk about my recent experience with EMDR, which I did. I actually did online through video conference um, as a test trial. I did not think it would work, but it was incredible. And I used a trauma that was really, really plaguing me. And I, I didn't quite understand how much it was plaguing me until it went away. Huh. So on Valentine's Day 2018, I was home with my twin boys who were a year at the time or like 13 months. And I heard a scream next door, which sounded like absolutely 100% someone was dying. No question in my mind. I left my children um, in their playpen and ran over there. And my neighbor's 19-month-old son had drowned in a two feet of water of their empty pool in their backyard. He had climbed out through the dog door, and the pool was empty, except it had been raining. And so there was like two feet of water, and he had, you know, gone down the stairs and slipped and whatever and um, drowned in the water. And by the time that I, I, the family was there, nobody knew how to do CPR And I came in and pushed everybody out of the way because they were just yelling at him and started performing CPR on him. And he was full of some, you know, pool water or whatever, uh, rainwater. And it was really gnarly. It was really traumatic because he was a kid that played with my kids. There were all sorts of things that went on. You know, I had a feeling that he was not safe at home and had, but there was not much I could do about that. And I performed CPR on him. The paramedics came and he went on to live for, I think, a week after that. Oh my God. Um, in the hospital and, and then passed away. And, uh, when I, so I 
do CPR on him, run out of, you know, paramedics come, whatever. I run back. I comfort the mom for a second. I run back to my house because the twins are there by themselves. And it was not very long that I was gone. Um, they were in the playpen, whatever. I run in the door. I like hating myself because I just ran away from my own kids. And on the tel- the television was on and the news had been on. And it was the Parkland shooting had just happened. So that was on the TV. Oh. And the twins are just playing because they were the, – Right. They're the, fine. They're, they're in their yeah. playpen. They're safe. Yeah. And I am screaming. So oh. like the gnarliest adrenaline I have ever experienced in my life. And if you've heard my story, that tells you. Like right. in my life, I have never felt adrenaline like that. And I like could not talk. I called I called um, Dak, my husband – and all I could do was scream. He was like, is everyone alive? And I couldn't say anything. Oh, and gosh. all I could say was yes. But I, I was like literally hysterically screaming. So this was like a really traumatic event for me. And um, my poor husband was stuck in L.A. traffic. So we had two of my friends come over and help me. And I was crying and crying and crying. And then I just stopped. And so like that evening, I stopped crying and I did not cry about it again until months. Like, I couldn't cry. It was stuck. I could not, like, I just couldn't. Oh, it was, like, clogged Yeah, it was, like, I I just, it stopped, and that was it. I did not cry about, I couldn't cry. So what was happening was I kept hearing the the twins would be loud or whatever, and I was, I would walk by the house, and I would have these images. I would. Because this is your next-door neighbor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the place where it happened was like feet from my bedroom. And so I was like, oh my gosh, like my bed is so close to where this happened. I was like kept thinking about it, kept worrying about it, kept wondering. I kept, you know, replaying it in my mind. I went to go visit him in the hospital. I was trying to figure out like what I – like I just Mm -hmm. got so wrapped up in it. And I I was constantly worried that the kids were being too loud and that they were going to remind the neighbors of their kid. And so I just couldn't. Function like I just couldn't. I was just captive. Yeah, like I just, I just my brain was kind of stuck on it, and Mm -hmm. I still like went through my life, and I thought I was okay. I really did. I thought I was okay. I mean, I knew that I wasn't nor like it wasn't that I was recovering from it, Mm -hmm. but I was like, oh well, it didn't happen to me. It wasn't my kid. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my blah blah blah. They weren't you know like all these things. Like who am I to have a response? Who am I to? Like, how can I even say I'm traumatized? Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So I do this EMDR, and I did the tapping version because the lights were – it was too hard for me to concentrate. And I don't know how to explain what happened. I mean, I did it with my – I went into it. was like, I don't know what will happen. Hopefully it will work. We'll see. We actually recorded – we video recorded it. And – I did it and I was like, I'm just going to do the best I can. Like, I'm going to try to connect. I'm going to be as, and I, I was able to cry. I was able to like connect with the emotion, walk through it, do the tapping. And I don't know what I like. I mean, I know what happened. I know we rewired, like, we were able to do. But after, I mean, most people do a lot more than one session. Mm-hmm. I don't think about it when we're in the pool, which, because we have a pool and they're uh-huh. next door and that was a huge thing. I don't think about it when we walk by their house. I don't think about it every time I see him, the dad. I don't, like, I, I mean, it crosses my, when I do think about it, I'm sad, mm-hmm. but not at a level where I'm, like, replaying images and it is so crazy. I don't, mm. I was, like, I became an instant, like, 
oh my God, we've got to tell everybody about this. This is unbelievable. Wow. And I think I was just so able to connect, so able to participate, so motivated to do it, so mm-hmm. like a part of the process that it worked. You know, that I was I, – I, I think other times I had done it, I was kind of like, this is super weird. You people are super weird. Right. Whatever. Right. Especially and if that, it's something new, a new technique. It, yeah. It can be a little strange And sometimes. I think I was like trying to connect to things, but I couldn't really connect to it. I was kind mm-hmm. of dead inside. Sure. And, um, so where you're yeah. at. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Like where I was. And I think this – I this was like I was able to access it. I also had a really amazing clinician. But I'm telling you, it was magic. It really was. It was, I mean, and because I have to live next door to them. So oh, it's it's definitely a, a big thing. And I had to forgive myself for leaving my children. And, mm-hmm. you know, I there was the added aspect of like, I can't, you know, I walked into my house and I couldn't save this kid. I, I didn't know if he lived or died at that point. But I walked into my house. Here's a kid that's the same age. They have an empty pool. I have a full pool God. with a fence around it, but a full pool. Yeah. The television, it's Valentine's Day. The television is blaring the Parkland shooting of at a school. And I just like. Too much. All I could think to myself, and my kids are a year old. Oh. I'm like, I can't protect my kids, you know, yeah. right? Like that was like, as a mother, you're just like, oh my God. And so that narrative was really kind of lodged in my chest. Actually, like four months later, the the gardeners left the pool gate open mm-hmm. and Jackson got out and was standing by the pool. I, I, I think he was standing by the pool for like 10 seconds, but there were three adults in the house, three oh, adults. And the curtain was my. covering the sliding door. So we God. didn't know it was open. And no, none of us left the door open. And there were three adults in the room and in, in the house. Um, Dak and I were working and Mariana was there with the kids and he got literally 10 seconds. He was just standing there by the pool talking apparently. And she was like, what, what, where? And I was inconsolable. I, I'm like frozen right now thinking about. I mean, not that you wouldn't be in general, not that you wouldn't be in general, but I had a re- my reaction was a traumatic reaction, like wow. a full-on, as opposed to a fear-based reaction. I was, I, I had a very large reaction in general, like for a while. Right. I, I just, I just can't say enough good things about that process for me as it relates to EMDR, and I've seen that with other people as well. So I just want, I, I, I tell that story just because it's like it's one thing to say, oh, this form of therapy is really great. And it's another thing to talk about, like, no, seriously, this changed my life and I'm living it daily because I experienced mm-hmm. the trigger daily. Right. And you are literally experiencing, you're literally living next to the trigger. Right. You're, That's you're, what I mean. Like, yeah, I, it, it's like you could not get more, you know, you could not be more exposed. Like, con- exactly. Yeah. Without living in the home. I just think that that's such an incredible story and such an incredible option. That's kind of what I was speaking to a little bit earlier with taking your power back mm-hmm. and and that there yes. are options to get that relief and to take your power back that, you know, like I think that the lie that your brain tells you whenever you are living with trauma or PTSD is that things will never get better and it will always be like this. And so therefore you have to almost like shrink and condense mm-hmm. your life down. Keep it a secret. Yes. And condense everything down to this little box where you're living in and where you're trying to function and survive. And, you know, again, like I I just want to state that 
everyone has gone through some sort of trauma, some yeah. more layers or levels than yeah. other. And so, you know, I, I definitely don't want to. Big wanna, T, little T, whatever it is. Exactly. And so I don't, I don't want to like think that I'm, you know, I'm just telling people, oh, just go get MD, EMDR and you'll yeah, be totally no. fine. But, but I think, and the whole point of this podcast is to get these stories out there, tell these stories so that people understand that there are these amazing options for relief and that mm-hmm. you do not have to live just completely like under, you know, the, these levels of trauma that Tightly are wound. crushing yeah. you to death. You can, there are ways to heal and start the healing process yep. or journey, whatever you need. And, and some of some, it's, it could be as, as sim- not as simple as, but EMDR could actually give you that relief and that healing, or it could be that and something else or not EMDR, but, but that there are options and that there are ways to heal and um, to give you that hope for that. I think that's the biggest thing. Like I was talking with my therapist before I went to my mother's wedding last year and there were a lot of, I won't go into the stories, but there, there's a lot of stuff regarding the family and people that she was connected to that I was very concerned about facing. And, and it's stuff that I've been removed from for a very long time. But in my therapy sessions that I went to, like I, I literally told her, I was like, I, I can pretty much get along with anyone. You can stick me in a room with people that I agree with, I don't agree with, political opinions, but it doesn't matter. I can really honestly live with a very wide variety of people. My issue kind of stemmed from everything that had happened within my past and and just very extremely harsh judgments. And I realized I was so afraid of like what someone was going to say that it was almost paralyzing me from mm-hmm. like even going to my, and I, I should be there for my mom's wedding, right? Like that's, I, I really, that's what we were saying. Like that's the trauma, right? So you were paralyzed. I remember this. You were paralyzed, but the fear of what someone was going to say, but what people don't realize is that stems from the, a traumatic experience. It's mm-hmm. not like you're having a, it may not be something that that's a huge reaction. It may be like, oh, I don't want to go to this wedding because I'm afraid of this and it feels paralyzing, right? Like that may be the situation, but that may stem from, that may be a traumatic, a trauma response. Right. From specific situations that had happened where, yeah, I was, I was alone, not protected, had to defend myself as a very young kid from a very horrible situation. And so, when I was talking with my therapist about it, and I, she's like, okay, well, I can, we've, we've got two sessions left before you leave, so what do you want to talk about? And I was like, I just know I'm going to get cornered and this is going to happen. Like, I just know these people. It's going to be like there's going to be 10 people and they're all going to confront me whenever I go to pick up a sandwich and I'm in the corner by myself. I just know it. I'm going to be head on a swivel. And she goes, okay, how about this? Let's talk through the things that you know they're going to say to you and let's write down some responses. And I actually because I have a really good memory, but for some reason couldn't remember these responses. I couldn't remember the things that she was telling me to say. So I got my phone out. I wrote notes. And then um, we, we wrote out the three questions that I, I realized I was really afraid of. Right. And then I wrote down the answers. I was like, these are genius responses. You are a genius. And and so then I went, my best friend went with me to the wedding and I called her and I'm like, hey, this was a really great session. Like I, I feel like I'm getting some strength and she goes, okay, let's practice. And so she would ask me the questions yeah. and I stumble fumbled and I just thought, oh God, how is this going to go? Like, you know, I'm, I'm a 36 year old woman who's like, feels like a five-year-old <laughs> right. kid. Like, right. I'm so scared. What's somebody going to confront me right. about? And like having to realize like, okay, I'm 
36. Like, I can stand on my own two feet. I can say, but you can go, you know what? Hey, I want to walk away from you because you know what? You're kind of rude. Yeah. I can also say that. That's also okay to say. But yeah, whenever we practiced it, and then I got into the situation and I got my power back. Yeah. I got asked all three questions. No, you didn't. All three questions. I was going to say, I bet you didn't get asked any of them. I got asked all three, and it was within two minutes of walking into oh, the room. Oh, my gosh. And it, there were some people inserted in there that, like, I didn't, like, see coming. Yeah, so yeah. I was like, oh, hi, person I haven't seen for 15 years. But, you yeah. know, you have lots of opinions about our lives and how we should live them and all these yeah. different I, – I am, sum, like, very big time summarizing. But but I sat there, and I, I sh- I'm sure I looked very smug. But it felt so good to have those answers. And I just thought, oh, my God, like this is possible. Like no matter you, I'm giving a different kind of example. No, you're giving a perfect example because my example is very dramatic, which is like the story of my life. (laughs) Just just, like really dramatic things (laughs) happen to me. But I feel like that's a really common example where that stems from significant trauma, but you don't connect the two things and – you went to therapy, and people always say, "Oh, well, I could have thought of that." Yeah, but you won't. But I, I but you no won't. Way. And no. someone would talk. Yes, it's not that you can't think of those things. It's that someone else come. Your therapist said to you, "Let's talk it through." You talked it through with someone else. They brought that level. They walked you through it. They helped your brain understand. I can face this fear. Came up with solutions. Walked you through the solutions, and you were able to do it. And just by that guidance. You were able to walk through something. And because you did that, you have a new layer of confidence and lack of fear of that judgment. Like the work that you did by doing that was actually greater than surviving that moment. It totally was because you. I walked away with a life skill. Right. So that if – and probably when, but if I encounter something like that again, then I yeah. actually have tools in my tool belt. And yeah. I can react from adult Christiana who has worked exactly. and processed through, not five the, the five-year-old in my mind that still felt unprotected. And, exactly. and it felt very, very, very real to the point where halfway through the wedding, I was sitting there with my best friend who is the greatest person. I mean, I just love her so much. She's just like such a, a firecracker and just such a great – support system in my life in so many different regards. But she like looked at me and I looked at her and she, she said something like, you know, I just see everything. I just want you to know, I just see everything for what it is and for like what's going on, basically meaning the dynamics and stuff. And she, it was just such between that and that other moment, I like looked at her and we both started laughing hysterically, like not at anyone, but just there was such a freedom that came from it. Yeah. And then like she and I just like tore it up on the dance floor the rest of the night and just ignored. I mean, and it it was, we ignored anyone else who was negative or if anyone wanted to ask questions, it was like, well, we're on the dance floor. See you later. Can't hear you. The music's real loud. (laughs) What is it? Cutting a rug? Yeah. But like it was, it was really freeing. And, and that was a huge moment for me because I feel like I I've lived so much of my life feeling like a victim of circumstances mm-hmm. and feeling like this is how it's a survival mentality, not a thriving mentality where these things happen and you adjust to the trauma, you adjust to the fear, you adjust to the anxiety instead of working through it and getting that power back where you get to decide how you live your life and how you respond to the trauma. Mm -hmm. And no, is it an overnight thing? Absolutely not. It is still a daily thing. 
but it's possible and and it's absolutely and my thing that I always say 100% possible to live like a powerful versus a powerless life. Does it yeah. mean that life isn't going to throw some curveballs or that things still aren't going to be hurtful, but it's definitely like there's always that possibility to take your power back. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. It's about, and and I said this to Casey in the episode, which was like, you're a survivor and you're meant to do something with us, yeah. something with all this trauma that she has experienced. And she has experienced a significant amount of trauma. Yeah. And I wanted to mention before I forget um, that our conversation about law enforcement, and I just wanted to say a little piece about this, that I have great respect for what law enforcement, first responders, military people, you know, the public servants do for us. And sometimes some of those people mess that up and or aren't properly trained or are coming from their own place of trauma or whatever. They're having a bad day, whatever it is. And, you know, so when we talked about the system not working or the law enforcement that she encountered trying to report her assault and then consequently not reporting her assault later, that I want to say that I realize that that is not all law enforcement, that that is not every public servant, that that is, you know, that, that there is an understanding of that. Unfortunately, there are many of those situations that are not handled in a way delicately or mm-hmm. with the right amount of professionalism or whatever needs to be, and that that is a problem that needs to be addressed. And it doesn't negate all of the amazing things that law enforcement does and that they're the first people that many of us call or think to call when we're scared or in trouble. But um, having had a similar experience to Casey with law enforcement trying to report something, that kind of thing that um, that I do want to say that, you know, I validate that and I have great admiration and respect for law enforcement. So just I know that's non sequitur, but I just wanted to throw that in before I forgot. That was another piece that um what did you just say non sequitur? Yeah. What like is not that? not in sequence. Oh. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm like, what? am I supposed to know what that means? Yes. No. Yes. Um, I love that. Okay, we just got smarter. Listeners who didn't know what that meant as well. Non sequitur, not in sequence. That is also it's a non sequitur. I'm going to say that. Um, Ashley, that yes. is non sequitur. It's not. Oh, much of what I say is non sequitur. Yeah, I think. It's about bringing hope. It's about knowing that there's solutions. Mm -hmm. And when you're living in recovery, like when you have a life in recovery, whatever that looks like for you, you're adding to your tool belt, Mm -hmm. right? So every situation that you come across, you know, even even a tool, for example, that your mom probably gave you when you were little, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? That's a tool. That's a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. I really want to tell this person that they can go shove it where the sun don't shine, right? If you don't have something to say, don't say anything at all. Keeping your mouth shut. That's a tool. That's Mm -hmm. a a coping skill, right? So all of these coping skills we all accrue over time, whether they're good or bad, right? (laughs) you know, uh, whether they're healthy or not, they're all coping mechanisms. You know, if you feel, you know, if you feel stressed, you eat. If you feel stressed, you drink, whatever, whatever it is. You feel stressed, you exercise, Mm -hmm. you meditate, coping skills, all coping skills. So a big piece of being in recovery, living in recovery is learning the coping skills, working through the stuff, you know, the trauma, the issues, the solutions, the pain, the suffering, whatever, so that by the time you get to the 
triggering situation, the coping skill actually works. Mm -hmm. So you can have a coping skill, which is, you know, don't say things I don't mean. But if you don't work through the explosive anger, Mm -hmm. the fact that you know that coping skill is not going to serve you because you have explosive anger. So, you know, it's it's a multifaceted process of, identifying, you know, in the, in the 12 steps, the first step is admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable, right? Admitted that we were powerless over this thing. Not mm-hmm. that we were powerless in our whole life, but that we were powerless over this thing, mm-hmm. meaning when it came to that thing, we did not have power and that that thing made our life unmanageable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could add in, you know, take out alcohol and add in a whole bunch of stuff. A lot of people, it's anger admitted I was powerless over my anger and that my anger made my life unmanageable. Mm, I mean, that, that's not, it, that's that's all we're talking about, right? right. That's the first, and people joke, you know, you hear in, in uh, modern conversation, like, you know, the first step is we admit we're powerless or admit that we have a problem. That's true. You mm-hmm. can't, there's no place to go if you, you know, admit you have a problem. Then you move on from there. And that's, once you admit that you have the problem, now we're looking for solution, Now we're looking for, okay, where do I go from here? We reach out to people who have a better understanding of what we're dealing with. And we create community with people who've been there before and have what we want. Those are the basic tenets Mm -hmm. of how you enter into any type of recovery. That's so good. Thank you for that reminder. Because, you know, if you're in recovery or not, these are things that you absolutely can apply to your life. Mm -hmm. This is so important. Like I truly became a better person once I started learning recovery and learning all the aspects of it and sitting in, you know, some of our, our group sessions and listening to the personal work and and the phase work and step work that people are having to do and started applying it to my own life as well. Yeah. And it has been, I mean, just so, so helpful in helping me identify how I can also go through my, like, you don't need to be diagnosed with the substance use disorder no. in order to work through these. Like the, oh, these gosh, are no. life skills. And, and again, like I bring this up all the time, but why I just have such a high respect for people who are living in recovery, because it is astoundingly difficult to wake up and make that decision to do that work every single day. There are times when you do not want to, because you are just tired and you just want to do what you want to do. And people make the decision to do it and to live in recovery anyways. Yes. And the consequences of not doing so are very painful. Right. So I'm often not motivated by the fact that it's a good thing to do and more motivated by the fact that if I don't do it, I'm going to be in a lot of pain. But it, however you're doing it, you're doing right, it. Right. Right. And that's, yes, that is that is accurate. But I am very motivated by not wanting to be in pain. Like the motivation for me to get through my school classes is I get to buy myself something when I complete a class. So yeah. you know what? Yeah. Hey, it's coming out of my... Well, what I, yeah, whatever. That is a really low level yeah. example. But you know, no, I no, told no, my no. husband, well, I was like, I'm going to finish this class if I can buy a hat. And he's like, buy a hat. <laughs> That stuff doesn't work for me because I'll buy the hat anyway. I buy the hat, ship it to my house, and I make him hide it. And I don't get it until I complete it. And then I I get it immediately. An alcoholic, drug addict. That is how I know. Because I would absolutely find it. I would order a second one. Like, that's none of that (laughs) stuff works for me. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I will talk (laughs) myself right into no hat. I will talk myself right into new hat. No finished school. No problem. <laughs> no questions asked. I am just, I, oh, God, to be me. Um, wait, there was one more thing. Oh, 
So someone mentioned that Apple Podcasts is asking you to, like, put your billing information in but not pay money. Like, mm. like it doesn't cost anything to download our episode, but it asks you to buy the ep- purchase the episode. Really? So, yeah, someone mentioned sent that to me. If you're experiencing that, this podcast does not cost any money. So if it's asking you to purchase something, it's going to show up as $0 because it's $0 to listen. You can also go on to lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast and listen for free, stream from there. And it also there, if you want to use any other, you know, things outside of Apple Podcasts to listen to the podcast, there are a bunch of other programs that will play it for you, Mm -hmm. um, particularly ones that work on mobile devices. Mm -hmm. So again, lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. If you're having any issues, email us at podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. Reminder that guest episodes are coming out every single week now, every single Tuesday. And this is the first of our combo episodes for our After the Episode series. That's right. Combo peanut butter and jelly. Oh, can I be peanut butter? Because I like it better. And I'm very gelatinous. (laughs) So what do you mean? I'll take it. As long as I'm grape gelatinous. Grape jelly. Yeah. Really? Not strawberry? Conquered. I don't know why grape jelly just like, I I feel like it reminds me of medicine. Strawberry is where it's at. I like medicine. (laughs) (laughs) We are losing it. It's not even 4 p.m. and we're losing it. I know. Okay. Wait, did we have other? Okay, combo episodes. Every other Thursday is when they're coming out. So we're covering two episodes and one after the episode. Oh, I know. Okay. So if there are topics, questions, things you want us to cover, um, I'm, again, I mentioned this in Emily's episode, but that I want to put together uh, like a mom panel of moms in different spaces, stages, stages, thank you, of sobriety. If there are other types of panels that you're interested in hearing, please let us know. We are going to be dropping some special episodes here and there. I have no idea when it's going to come out. It could be a while, but we are going to, (laughs) I am interviewing my husband about sober marriage. So this that, will be great. And that's going to be real interesting. We may have to do a lot of editing. I might need to like bring my husband for your husband's support just because you and I in the room is a little bit like It's going to be real intense. Real intense. Um, or maybe not. Maybe it won't be real intense. Maybe he'll just clam up. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see him doing that. Yeah, that's definitely not. not his personality. No. So yeah. So if you, sober motherhood was, was a, a topic. If you have other ideas or topics or subcategories that you want to hear about, podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. Email us. Or if you'd like to be interviewed. Or if you'd like to be interviewed. Oh, yeah. Tell them where they can go for that. So if you'd like to be interviewed, uh, same website, uh, lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. There is a link on there to fill out our podcast guest application. That's the first step in being considered as a guest. And just fill it out and tell us a little bit about your story and uh, why you'd like to be on the podcast. If you're looking for free resources, again, go to lionrockrecovery.com backslash support groups. And there are free workshops and links to meetings there. And also if you need, if you don't have 
funds. If you're interested in EMDR treatment or any of that and you don't have funds, carry. If you go to the chat option from the website, Carrie will help you find um, wherever you're located, will help you find free resources, obviously no charge, to any of these options, therapies, et cetera. So if you need help, we are happy to help you. And please do not hesitate to reach out. It is entirely confidential. And we are here to help. All righty. Well, This was a wonderful time, as always, and I look forward to the upcoming interviews coming out every Tuesday and every other Thursday doing the after the episode topic sessions. Thank you guys so much for joining us. This is our favorite part of the week, and we will see you next week. Later, Gators. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 